Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've gathered us together this morning. We pray that you would teach us to remember that our truest and fullest satisfaction is found in you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us to live lives that are satisfied in you to your glory. And let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please be seated. Before I got married, every Sunday after church, I would drive by the Burger King on Gail Gardner next to Walmart. I, I've always, I always lived off of Gail Gardner before we bought a house and, and all of that. And, and as you might imagine, Sundays are, are the most stressful days. They get very busy, and often by the time I'm, I'm leaving and going home, I'm hungry and tired and all of that. And I don't know if you've noticed this about that Burger King, at least specifically, and maybe this is all Burger Kings, but you can smell like the grease as you drive by. <laughs> And every Sunday, it was this deep temptation to pull in there and get a burger. And the times I did, it was not a pleasant thing. They, I, I think either their burgers are worse than, than normal Burger King burgers, or Burger King burgers are way less good than I remember them from when I was a kid. But I imagine we've all experienced kind of that deep, hungering desire, whether it be just because food is scarce for some reason, which I hope that's not the case for most of you, if not all of you, or because you went on a long hike, which I'd really rather it be, or you had a long day like I was describing and you forgot to eat and you just become so ravenous and you're driving home and you smell the Burger King, even though you know full well that your spouse has something delicious cooked for you, you pull in and you you get that burger and you, you eat it really quickly and immediately regret all of your choices. <laughs> But hunger has that way, right, of just kind of overcoming our brain. So we just eat almost indiscriminately. We just desire something to satiate that hunger. This morning, we meet a hungry crowd, right? And, and that's the whole premise that starts us off. This, this crowd is very hungry, and before we dive into this passage, we, we, we need to remember that we're still in the region of the Decapolis. Jesus hasn't moved beyond that. And that's going to be a really important detail for understanding why Mark is telling us this occurrence in Jesus' life. And it's interesting because a lot of, a lot of this passage really seems similar to the, the feeding of the 5,000, which we read, I think, four or five weeks ago about a month and a half ago, and has a lot of the same, same details. And so that's led some modern scholars to think, well, maybe this is what's called a doublet. Basically, a doublet is a retelling of a story to make a point. And while some of the details are really similar, some of the details are so very different that most conservative scholars and historically scholars have never said that this is, in fact, a doublet. In fact, they say, no, this, this can't be a doublet because the details are so different that even though the ones that are the same make it that it's just impossible to read it as the same. But what is most likely happening here 
is Jesus is performing more or less the same miracle that he performed, which we read about four, five or six weeks ago, in order that he might make a very clear point to his disciples. And as we read, we realize one of the first really unique details is that at least some of the people, maybe all of the people, had been with Jesus for three days. This doesn't happen in the first one. And many of those people hadn't eaten in those three days. If you fasted for more than a day or two, you know how hungry prolonged fasting will make you. And the people are so hungry that Jesus fears that if they try and make a day's journey elsewhere, even just a day's journey, they might faint along the way. And that, that's how big Decapolis was. It would take about a day to go across it. And so depending on where he was, it would have taken a substantial amount of time for them to get home. At the turn of this century, there was a Roman Catholic philosopher, he's still alive, his name is Charles Taylor, and he predicted that this would be what he called a secular age. He was not by far the first. C.S. Lewis often writes in his, in his works about materialism. And when we read about materialism, it's not this want of a bigger TV or a nicer car or, or, or things to consume. It's actually the belief that the only thing in this world is the material things which we experience. In other words, this pulpit is real and those puyus are real, but are there angels? No, of course not. That's what materialists would believe. The things that you can't experience, the materialists would deny. And this is the precursor, of course, to what Charles Taylor is referring to when he talks about the secular age. And while for many, this, this seems to be the default view if you talk to them, it, it seems to be the default view. Yeah, of course, only what we can experience physically is real. We quickly start to realize in talking to them that we live in a hungry, hungry time. People are starving and famished, and many have not eaten spiritually for three days, or three years, or three decades. That is, your unbelieving children, your unbelieving neighbors, or friends, or loved ones may state a materialistic viewpoint, but the reality is, the reality is, is that they've created some sort of God to take the place of God himself. This is in part why the sort of neo-Eastern religion, especially what you might experience if you go to Sedona, is so popular now. Because you can go in and you can get your picture taken and it shows your aura and you can feel really good. Be like, oh, my aura is super pretty. I've been playing, you know, there's an aura taking picture place next to the ice cream shop and I've always wondered about that. <clears throat> But whatever, whatever gods take their, the place of God himself, their gods, even your gods, end up being these things that we take and make our identity in. Maybe somebody's a soccer mom and that's their, their chiefest purpose in life. Being a soccer mom in and of itself isn't a bad thing. It's, it can be a very beautiful thing supporting your kids. But when that becomes your identity, it becomes your God. And we can go on and list all of these different things that we can make into little gods and worship. The reality is, 
is that the people that we interact with daily aren't so much materialists, but are much more like this crowd. A day's journey would be too long for them because they are famished. When Jesus makes it clear to his disciples that his desire to feed the crowd is to feed the crowd, their reaction is much the same as we saw six weeks or so ago. They respond, well, how in the world are we going to feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, I, I, I go through and I, I read the, the text. I'm not saying this to puff myself up, but I read the text in the Greek and, and see how that compares. And this was such a bizarre little phrasing that the disciples respond with. I ended up just copying the ESV so I'd have something in that place because I couldn't wrap my mind exactly around what Mark was trying to say. But what, what, what Jesus says here and Mark records, or, or what the disciples say and what Mark records, isn't really asking about the bread, but the disciples are actually asking, how can we satisfy this crowd? How can we satisfy this crowd? And this question of how Jesus is going to satisfy them is important. And you might ask the similar question, can Jesus satisfy, how can Jesus satisfy these worldly desires that we see around us? Can Jesus satisfy the worldly desires that I wrestle with? Can Jesus satisfy the worldly desires of my children? of my family, of my friends? Can Jesus satisfy my neighbor's desires? But Jesus, as Jesus so often does, does not seem particularly phased by the question of his disciples. Instead, he simply asks, how many loaves do you have? How many loaves do you have? And they respond, seven. And seven is important. If we go back all the way to Deuteronomy 7, which is not why it's important, but that that's where it is in Scripture, we go back all the way to Deuteronomy 7, we hear Moses telling the people what the Lord says. Moses tells to the people, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous than you and mightier than you. And he goes on to tell them how they will drive out those seven nations. We start to recognize that seven is not just a random number that, that happened to be the loaves, but a very intentional number of loaves to be had. Because seven represents the totality of the nations. And we see this in secular cultures as well, which is rather interesting. Seven represents the number of seas. And, and the seven seas, it was interesting, I, was, I looked this up. The seven seas have been seven different seas, but they're always all of the seas that that world would have recognized at the time. Until now, we have the seven oceans, right? The seven seas, North Atlantic, South Atlantic, Pacific, so on and so forth. <clears throat> And so it starts to represent the whole world. And of course, there's the seven continents as well. And this might just be happenstance or divine providence in his kindness. I, I've had people laugh at other people when, when they say something like that. But, but the point is, is that we're starting to get a hint 
at what Jesus is doing here. He is opening something up to all the nations, to the whole world. Like the first reading, Jesus directs the people to sit for a meal, but they're not broken into groups. They're just gathered around, and he gives thanks and gives the meal to the people. And I think the kind of the clincher on the idea that this is a doublet, that, that, that says, no, this can't possibly be a doublet, is because the fish come as almost an afterthought. It's like Mark is like, oh yeah, and there were some fish, and he gave them to them. And, and they almost have their second, their own independent blessing. And so Mark kind of jars us out of thinking that this is a doublet by showing that there's this difference in this whole miracle. And yet the point we're going to see really shortly is the same. After the fish are sent out, we read, and they ate, that is the crowd ate, and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven basket filled. Having now partaken in the bread and the fish, the people were satisfied. And grammatically here, St. Mark is trying to make something very, very clear. And we, we, we don't have the way to, to do that in English, but what Mark wants us to know is that the people ate their full fill, sorry, and they were completely, they were completely satisfied. They had no more want. And then we have the seven baskets collected. Remember from the 5,000, how many baskets were collected? Twelve. Thank you. (laughs) Twelve baskets were collected. Twelve baskets denoting all of Israel. And now seven for the whole world. In other words... Christ is not only sufficient for Israel, though he is sufficient for Israel. The seven baskets drive home the reality that Christ is sufficient for the whole world. Now think back to where we've traveled the last few weeks. Jesus has been ministering in the Gentile, or or in, yeah, in the Gentile regions. He he leaves, and, and it starts with this almost jarring statement when the woman comes before him and he says, no, no, let the children be fed first for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And if you were here and you remember, well, this seems like a really jarring rebuke to the woman, it ends up rebuking the faith of the Pharisees and the disciples because this woman had a faith that the Pharisees and the disciples didn't. And then Jesus goes into the Decapolis and he heals this man who is deaf and could not speak. And, and well, the actions of the healings might have been what it, we might expect for a healer to do. The healing itself was incredible. He healed the man completely. And what made that the most important was the fact that he could speak freely. He could speak as any one of us can speak Totally understandable. And as we wrap up his time in the Gentile region, as we wrap up his time in the Gentile region, the message is clear. Jesus is the bread for every nation, not reserved just for some, but all who come to him, all who are hungry, all who are weary, all who need to be satisfied. 
Because Jesus is the satisfaction for a hungry humanity. Jesus feeds us completely when we come to him hungry and desperately. He fills us. He fills you thoroughly. Now there's a unique detail here that's really easy to miss. Mark lists here that there were 4,000 people. And if you go back to the other story, there were only 5,000 men. And that seems really subtle, right? But the fact that Mark says people instead of men means that in this crowd there were men, women, and children. And while there might have been men, women, and children in the other one, Mark was emphasizing something else there. But the fact that he brings out the men, women, and children here drives home the reality that Jesus is the satisfaction for people, regardless of race, neither Jew nor Gentile, regardless of, ge- of gender, neither male nor female, regardless of age, neither young or old. Jesus is the satisfaction for all. Now, unlike the first feeding, Jesus, now like the first feeding, rather, Jesus dismisses the crowd. But when the, and the, he and his disciples depart immediately and head to another region, and we'll learn that he he goes off and, and immediately he's confronted by the Pharisees. So he's back in the, in the Jewish region. But this kind of wraps up the whole thing. And the Reformed theologian. <clears throat> Herman Bavnik wrote this really wonderful thing that wraps this up. The conclusion, therefore, is that of St. Augustine, who said that the heart of man was created for God and that it cannot rest until it rests in the Father's house. Hence, all men rarely really seek after God, as St. Augustine also declared, but they do not all seek him in the right way nor in the right place. They seek him down below, and he is up above. They seek him on the earth, and he is in heaven. They seek him afar, and he is nearby. They seek him in money, in poverty, in fame, in power, and in passion. And he is to be found in the high and holy place with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit. They do seek him, if haply they might feel after him and find him. They seek him in the same time they flee him. They have no interest in knowledge of his ways, and yet they cannot do without him. They feel themselves attracted to God and at the same time repelled by him. In this Pascal, so profoundly pointed out, consists the greatness of the miserable man, for he longs for the truth and is false by nature. He yearns for rest and throws himself from one diversion to another. He pants for a permanent and eternal bliss and seizes on the pleasures of a moment. He seeks for God and loses himself in the creature. He is born he is born son of the house and he feeds on the husks of the swine in the strange land. He forsakes the fountain of living water and hews out the broken cisterns that can hold no water. He is a hungry man who dreams that he is eating, and when he awakes, finds that his soul is empty. He is like a thirsty man who dreams 
that he is drinking. And when he awakens, finds that he faints and that his soul has appetite. Science cannot explain the contradiction in man. It only reckons with his greatness and not his misery, and only in his misery and not his greatness. It exalts him too high or it depresses him too far. For science does not know of his divine origin, nor of his profound fall. But but the scriptures know of both, and they shed light over man and over mankind. And the contradictions are reconciled, and the mists are cleared, and the hidden things are revealed. Man is an enigma whose solution can only be found in God. To make that simpler, man is an enigma whose solution can only be found in God. Or as St. Augustine says, the heart of man was created for God, and that it cannot find rest until it rests. In the Father's heart. What God has done for you, if you are in Christ, is fed you in such a way through His Word and through His sacrament that He has offered you total satisfaction in this life and in the next. What God is inviting to you, if you are fleeing from Christ and running from Him, is total satisfaction. What Christ is calling to each and every one of you this morning is reminding you of is the satisfaction that is offered to all who call out to him, to your neighbors, to your children, to your friends, and even, yes, to your enemies. The uniqueness and beauty of the Anglican tradition is that we, that it has held the importance of both the word, which we do celebrate right now, and of the sacraments. The right hearing and expounding upon the words draw us closer to God just as when we come to his table, we are united to him in holy communion. We are invited to come to this place to be reminded that it is God who satisfies our hearts. You are invited to this place to remember what God has done for you. Let us feast on his word and on his sacrament. Let us invite those who long to find rest, to find rest and satisfaction in him. Let us invite those who are restless, those who are wanting, to enjoy the same satisfaction that we enjoy here. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.